Well, good morning, everyone. I expect most of you guys know who I am already, but for the people listening to the recording, my name is Theo. I'm a church uh, council member at large and an elder in training. Um, I have the opportunity of giving uh, all of you guys the message for today. So if you guys have been following along, we're in a series called God's Invitations. We've been talking about the different ways that we can come to God. And today's invitation is called Come Sinful. So today we're going to be talking about how Jesus invites sinners into covenant for atonement and sanctification, specifically. So we're going to go to God's Word to begin. Today we're in Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 12 through 26. You guys can follow along in the paper notes provided to you. Or if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can use that as well. Um, You just go to the tab labeled more, click the event link, and you'll see the slides under Redeemer Baptist Church. Uh, Again, you can follow along also if you have the hard copy of your Bible. We're in Mark 14, verses 12 through 28. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. And he had his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it. So most of you are familiar with this passage as the Last Supper, what What some of you guys might not be quite as familiar with are some of the themes that are happening as Christ invites his apostles to a final meal with him. So today we're going to be discussing how Jesus invites sinners to enter into a covenant with him. And we're going to talk about how uh, Christ's body is uh, in the unleavened bread. And then finally we'll discuss the fruit of the vine uh, in the new covenant in Christ's blood and why that should make us praise God. So the passage here starts with a date and a question. The day that they ask the question is the first day of unleavened bread. And the question is, where will you have us or the 12 disciples 
go and prepare for you to eat Passover. And the apostles get a, sort of an oddly detailed uh, answer in verses 13 through 15. Go into the city, find a man with water, ask his master where to set up, and he'll show you a furnished room to prepare in. Christ was ready for this question. The fact that Christ answered the question implicitly suggests that all 12 disciples were invited. He could have said, you guys go here and do this, but uh, Judas, you're not invited. But he didn't say that, right? So it's no stretch to say that Jesus extended the invitation to all of them. And then the dinner's actually carried out. The, the gospel accounts, uh, there's two other ones that um, I went through in preparation in Luke 22 and Matthew 26. They vary just a little bit in the order of events. But in every account, Christ issues what we now call communion. And he announces to the group that his, uh, one of his apostles will betray him. So let me say that again. He invites all of his apostles and says, one of you will betray me. So Jesus, the sinless man without blemish, perfect in every way, the only man to have perfectly loved each and every one of the men at that table was betrayed. And worse than that, he was actually sold for the price of a slave, an inconsequential amount. It was such an inconsequential amount that it was just thrown on the floor. I know about you guys, maybe I'm cheap. I wouldn't throw a dollar on the floor. (laughs) And that's what he sold for. So imagine the Son of God who had who had treated you with nothing but kindness, who had encouraged you from spiritual youth, who had trained you in the ways of righteousness, and, and then you, you turn around, you stab him in the back, and you sell him for a buck. What a horrible sin that was. It's wicked and it's disgusting. And we know from the gospel account that it was Judas who was going to betray Jesus in this way. But Jesus invites Judas to dinner anyway, doesn't he? He takes a loaf of bread and he hands him a piece. He pours a Judas um, some wine. And Judas wasn't alone. I, I think a lot of times Judas gets a bad rap. Um, but Peter's denial was just as bad. Or some scholars even argue that it was worse. We're, we're going to discuss that in a little bit about why it may have been worse. Um, but in Matthew 26, 34, Jesus said to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And sin was not unique to even Peter or Judas. All of the apostles had sin in their life. And so it's no stretch to say that Jesus is sitting around a crowded table full of sinners. And he had invited each and every one of them. And it wasn't anything new to Jesus. Jesus was Throughout scripture, inviting sinful people to his table, we see in Mark 2.15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So here it is in the gospel. It's, It's recorded that Christ made a habit of inviting sinners. But maybe we could still say something foolish, like maybe we could say, well, maybe Jesus didn't know that they were sinners. Here's the problem with that statement. The the sins committed um, against Christ, well, we can stick with Judas for a moment. Um, They weren't some new epiphany that Jesus had just got sitting at the table. Um, Two verses before our section in in Mark 14, 10, Judas had already betrayed Christ. And and there's a good possibility that Jesus already knew it. Um, And here's here's why. The words of uh, Zechariah uh, foreshadowed Jesus' betrayal 500 years earlier. Here it is in Zechariah 11, 13. They paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. 
the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it to the potter at the house of the Lord. So there's, there's all this repeated imagery in this passage when you compare it to the passage where Jesus throws his 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and they use it to buy a potter's field where Judas eventually takes his own life. So, and, and we, we knew that Christ knew this, right? Christ knew scripture well. He was always um, re- repeating it, reciting it for the, to the Pharisees, and he studied it his whole life. So almost guaranteed he knew this exact phrase. He knew Zechariah's uh, words. And, um, and so Christ's invitation for these sinners was not a mistake. Christ's invitation was, was deliberate. It was premeditated. It was preconceived. It was a decision that he made. So, now we know that Jesus knew that the apostles were sinners. So, so why did he still hold Passover in the way that he did? Jesus could have thrown the party. He could have invited everybody, and then he could have just not shown up. Everything was prepared. He could have just not, simply just not shown up to the party. Or he could have left early. He could have walked in and said, you guys are all sinners, done a mic drop, and left. Or another option is he could have showed up and had a nice, pleasant meal with them and said absolutely nothing. But he didn't do any of those things. So we're going to ask this question twice. I see two answers to this question, so we're going to ask it twice. Uh, why did Jesus choose to sit at a table full of sinners? Why did he, why did he engage them in this way? Why did he endure it? In Mark 2.17, it says, those, uh, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was modeling for us how we can enter into covenant with one another. Do you, do you guys find that you tend to avoid people or situations that, that you don't like because they make you uncomfortable? Do they threaten your safety? Are they fake friends that you have sitting around you? Would they sell your body for a buck? Jesus had every single one of those sitting at his table with him. He knew it and he ate with them anyway. He made a covenant with them anyway. And he atoned for them anyway. Is that what a covenant looks like to each of you? Is that, what, is that the type of person that you invite to your table? So let's look at the cross what, for what covenant looks like. Jesus foreknew each of us before we were born. He used the Passover land. He was slain before the foundations of the earth were laid, and he died for our sins. He knew um, what our sins were and that we hung them there and we kept them there, and yet he still prepared a place for us at his table. He could have created the earth for us and left us alone in our sin. He could have had a pleasant life on, ignored, on earth and ignored our sin. He could have just called us sinners and left. But he didn't do any of those things because each one of those options would have left each and every one of us damned. We are the sick that are needing of a physician. We need healing. We need Jesus to come and heal our spiritual sickness. So Christ uh, ate with sinners. We we see that it was a model for us um, and so that he could heal sinners like us. Um, But remember, we're going to ask this question twice. What's the second time? Why did Jesus come and eat sinner, eat with sinners at his table? In Luke's account of the Last Supper, Jesus is recorded saying, I have eagerly desired 
to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's Luke twenty two fifteen. So why did God in the flesh leave the beauty of the throne room so that he could be betrayed and denied by sinners that he had died for to, to sanctify and to atone for? Well, the reason is right there, because he loves us. The words earnestly desire, in my opinion, sort of, they fall a little bit short. Um, the, the, the word here is translated from the Greek word um, epithemeo, which is to have des- a desire to covet, lust after, or long for a thing. There aren't really stronger words that exist for wanting. So what I want to do here is take a minute to paint a, a word picture for you. Actually, I have a couple. Um, we're going to start with reading uh, verses, a few verses. They're scattered throughout Ezekiel 16 um, that, that I think it frames earnest desire well. So God talking about his people, he says, on the day you were born, you were despised. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you've done, you will remember and be ashamed. So how badly... In your opinion, does someone have to desire another person to take them from nothing and then give them everything? If, if I could give you guys homework, I would strongly recommend after you go home today, go and read the entirety of Ezekiel 16. And you guys will see what I'm saying when I'm talking about earnest desire. But, but the shorthand is God, God clothes his bride in his own robe. He gives her fine linen and jewels. He feeds her and washes her and he anoints her with oil. And she goes out and she performs some very graphic acts with other men passing by, giving them the clothing and jewelry that her husband gave her as payment. And then if that wasn't bad enough, she goes out and she murders her children. It's, a, it's actually a really difficult chapter to get through. The, the complete disgust with God's bride has to be reconciled with the unparalleled love of God. That's how much he loves his church full of sinners. That's how much he earnestly desires you and I. And that's what a covenant with God looks like. So if, if some of you guys out there are having uh, difficulty connecting with the story of marriage, I have another one that I thought I'd share um, that I, that's descriptive of covenant. I've been reading uh, these last uh, few weeks in First and Second Samuel, and, and I read the most beautiful verse in First Samuel 18. I thought I'd share it. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We're talking about King David here. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So you guys might be thinking, oh, so what? So David got some swag. No big deal, whatever. <laughs> well, the, the thing is here, he wasn't King David just yet. He was still a servant in Saul's house when this covenant was made. Um, and, and Jonathan gave him everything while he was nothing. 
And, and, and this part of the story isn't really even the part of the story that got to me. As I move through 1 Samuel, um, you see that Jonathan eventually dies fighting with Saul. And then um, in 2 Samuel 9, uh, David seeks out Jonathan's crippled son. His name is Mephibosheth. Try and say that five times fast. Fast. <laughs> Um, and he, he takes Mephibosheth and he finds him and he restores his inheritance back to Saul when it was at its greatest. And then he invites this, this crippled man, he invites him to eat at his table. And David says he does it for the sake of Mephibosheth's dead father, Jonathan. David says, eat with me for the rest of your life. Come and have restored wealth back to your grandfather. And Mephibosheth, which means from the mouth of shame, actually eats at David's table with his sons. It's an excellent picture of covenant. In order to honor Jonathan, David redeems Mephibosheth like we're redeemed by Christ. And Mephibosheth, in humility, he bows and he asks, what is your, who, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me, a despised creature that's dead in sin? And you and I, in this comparison, are the dead dogs. And Christ comes and he restores our inheritance. Christ takes our shame and he covers it, like Jonathan covers the lowly servant David with his robe. And we're only servants in Christ's house. Jonathan gives it all, and David returns in kind, even after Jonathan's death. Man, I can tell you, after reading this, I am really convicted of being a crummy friend and a worse follower of Christ. We say, I don't want to eat with them, those sinners. They annoy me, they frustrate me, they challenge me, they make me feel unsafe, uncomfortable. They're sinners. Shame on us for that. But glory to God. So hopefully we can see here that the invitation for sinners to come into covenant with Christ, uh, it, that's what the invitation is for, and we can do the same. He invites us and he eats with us. He covers or atones for us. And we've seen that he earnestly desires to do so. So if we were invited to come sinful, then we can stay in it, right? We can just stew in our sin, just remain sinful. Obviously, the answer is no, right? And, and it comes down to the type of covenant that's represented in this Passover feast that we're going to talk about here for just a minute. The Passover story begins in ancient Egypt when God passes over the Israelites for judgment and instead kills the, the Egyptians' uh, firstborn sons. God commands the Israelites not to eat any leavened bread during that time. We see the command in Exodus 34, 25a, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. So what's the deal with that? So a little bit of um, historical background. The, the ancient Jews would have known that on the, on the first day of un, unleavened bread, before they had sacrificed the Passover lamb and offered its blood as a sacrifice, that it would be, start, it'd be time to start throwing away all the leaven or the, the rising agents from their kitchens. They didn't eat leaven for seven days after uh, marking, the, which marked the completion of the feast. And they couldn't offer any leaven with that sacrifice. So um, some Jewish cultures actually still practice this today. They, they purge their kitchens of leaven, and some of them will actually ceremonially burn it afterwards. And it seems kind of like a strange practice until we read in 1 Corinthians that Christians are still supposed to practice this in a way today. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. 
Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the, the, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so for the saved Christian, Christ is our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed for our sins so that God's wrath would pass over us like it did the Israelites in Egypt. And in response, we are to cleanse out the old leaven of evil or sin and replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth or righteousness. And we cleanse until completion. We don't do it for seven days, but with our whole lives, there's no part of your life that goes untouched. So I have a question for you. I was talking with Maggie before the service. Does it, who knows the difference between sepsis and leavening? <laughs> I didn't. I had to Google it. <laughs> the body. That's really it. It's the body. A quick lesson. A leavening agent basically causes a chemical reaction. It can be performed by a leavening agent, such as baking soda. Thank you, Paige, for that um, knowledge. Um, or more to the point, it can be yeast. Uh, in the case of the yeast, it's essentially bacteria that eats sugar and releases carbon dioxide, uh, which causes the bread to rise. In leavened bread, the bacteria is desired, and the same thing can happen inside of our body. In, in the gut, it can, the bacteria can convert nutrients, uh, which is good. But when that bacteria, when any bacteria makes it into our bloodstream, it's a life-threatening condition, and it's called sepsis. And so... And, and we, take, we take antibiotics to fight off the sepsis, right? So, because it'll kill us otherwise. So what I, what I want you all to be thinking of is that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is more like someone who has sepsis and they want their body to be rid of this bacteria. So let's say our close family member came down with sepsis and infection spread through their whole body. What would we do? We'd sit with them in the hospital, we'd pray with them, we'd care for them. And it's not really any different for the church. We, we wouldn't want even a little bacteria left in the bloodstream. No one's just like, oh, it's just a little sepsis. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> Nobody says that, right? And each of us is, is a recovering patient. We need someone to care for us. And we need, uh, ultimately, some spiritual antibiotics. So what I'm going to do here to help better explain the analogy is I'm going to look at the difference between Peter and Judas. Remember we said we're going to talk a little bit later about them. We're going to talk about them right now. Um, so that should, that should help sort of clarify what I'm saying here. Both Peter and Judas struggled with sin. For Judas, it was specifically mentioned, John 12, his sin was greed. Not to say that was the only one, but that was the primary one mentioned. And for Peter, it was pride and quick temper, which are mentioned in Matthew 26 and John 18. Both men were sent out to perform miracles in Jesus' name. In Mark 6, it says that he sent out all 12, so there's no reason to suggest those two did not do that. Both men betrayed Christ. Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver after being entered by Satan, Luke 22, and Peter denied him three times after being recorded having been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew 16. So here's the difference. Peter repented... And Judas goes and he hangs himself in a tree. You might be tempted to say, well, that's because, you know, Judas was a worse sinner. And in some ways, um, that's just not true. Some scholars argue that Peter's actions were actually worse than Judas. 
We know Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit earlier in the text. And we know that, that Peter knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Judas, on the other hand, was filled by Satan. And there's even some, some debate as to whether or not he can even be held responsible for selling, for selling Jesus. The Holy Spirit hadn't revealed Jesus' true identity to Judas, as, as demonstrated by the fact that Judas called Jesus rabbi, which is teacher, while the other apostles called him Messiah. They knew he was God in the flesh. And so the difference isn't found in their abilities, and it's not found in their sinfulness. Their difference is found in the Holy Spirit. To Judas, Jesus was just a man. To Peter, Jesus was God in the flesh. To, to Peter, Jesus had the ability to cover and to, to forgive his sin and to sanctify him. That's why Peter repents and returns to Jesus while Judas hangs himself. Peter got the antibiotics, which is the Holy Spirit, and Judas did not. So Christ sits down at the table. He sits down at the table with sinners like Peter and Judas. And so should we. We eat with them. We pray with them. We care for them. And we ask our Father for some medicine, the Holy Spirit. So we've talked about Jesus' invitation for sinners into covenant. And we've seen how we don't want to leave Jesus as sinners like Judas did. And we now know that our sinfulness and our corresponding atonement and sanctification is completely dependent on Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we get all of this by our covenant with God. I've given you a few word pictures of what covenant looks like in marriage in Ezekiel 16 and in friendship in 1 Samuel 18. So now let's really get into the details. Let's get into the weeds of what covenant looks like so we can, we can see what they look like practically and we can apply them to our lives. So love and covenant go together. 1 Samuel 18 uh, says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because, why? He loved him. And if we look back at Ezekiel 16.8, God looks at his church and he says that she's ready for love. And then he enters into a covenant with her. Isn't that kind of strange though? Doesn't our society kind of say that love is passion and it's desire? What I'm hoping to show you guys today is that love isn't less than that, but it's more than that. God doesn't say you were ready for love and so I, uh, he had a feeling and his bride had a feeling and they moved in together. That's not what it says. He says, you were ready for love. So I made a vow. And this vow is so powerful that it transcends the disgusting acts of God's church over hundreds of years. And it even is so powerful that it transcends Christ's own lesser desires. So listen carefully to my words here. Covenant transcends Christ's lesser desires. Let me elaborate. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Christ has been talking throughout the gospel about the suffering that he's going to undergo. And his desire is to not suffer. The cup that he has to drink is the cup of God's wrath. He's going to say, he's going to his father and he's saying, Father, if it's possible to not be alienated from you, to, to not take the church's shame and, and, and pay the price for it, then let it pass from me. And yet he gives himself over to the sinners so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He does it to fulfill the covenant in his own blood. 
He's talking about covering us despite his lesser desire not to suffer, not to be alienated from the Father. And we all have lesser desires. Unlike Christ, our lesser desires are sinful. We have lesser desires um, for sexual sin, greed, pride, self-righteousness. The, the sky's the limit here, guys. And covenant frees us from these lesser desires. As Tim Keller puts it, covenant is a combination of love and law. Love leads to law. The, the law frees us from our sin when it's empowered by love. And even when we don't have the feelings of love. We make a legally binding contract to free us from our own sin. I know it seems a little counterintuitive, but, but just think about it for a second. Once I've made a vow and it cannot be broken, I have to accomplish that vow no matter what the cost or the obstacle is. When we enter into a covenant of Christ, we become bond servants to Christ. That is, we are servants in service to a covenant with Christ as our sinless master. And when we're bonded to Christ and we accomplish his sinless will, no matter the cost or the obstacle, we become sanctified or made progressively more sinless ourselves. Or as it's put in Romans 6.22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves or bondservants to Christ, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Once we're, we're slaves to God and we're set free from sin, we become free to flourish. And we already have a sense of this. We abide by a social covenant, don't we? We call it federal and state law. <laughs> it makes things like murder, rape, and stealing illegal. These are laws that are designed to cause society to flourish. We bind our lesser sinful desires to accomplish this covenant. Tim Keller uses a fish as an analogy. I know a lot of analogies here. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and you put it on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. Real freedom isn't restriction unless it's finding the right ones. Righteousness is our oxygen and water is our covenant. Like the fish, we only get righteousness within the restriction of covenant. And so we bind our lesser desires and make a covenant promising future love and God gives us righteousness. Practically speaking, covenant is a promise that though someone may sin against you and you against them, you will love, you'll endure with them. You will actively love them when they're not being lovable. Because an act of love is easy when the feelings of love are there. But it's hard when feelings of love aren't there. And that's why covenant exists. So we have a few word pictures now for what covenant is. We know that a covenant's a promise of future love and a means for sanctification. And so it should follow that we ought to make a covenant, right? Any member of RBC already knows this. But just because you're a member, don't fall asleep on me, okay? You're not off the hook yet. So just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So I've been asked before, what is the purpose of membership at, at RBC? Is it biblical? 
Well, your leaders, the elders and the council, we have a covenant with God to prevent our members as slaves to righteousness. So not only do we have to present our own personal members, like when Christ says, cut your hand off if it causes you to sin, but we need to present our corporate church body as slaves to righteousness. And so that's what we're doing up here each Sunday. When we read our covenant, we want you guys to see, when we read our vision, we want you guys to see what it looks like to be slaves to righteousness. We want to lead you there in a covenant that casts off sin, that seeks righteousness. So hopefully, uh, well, hopefully you guys aren't sitting there thinking, I'm a member, so I'm off the hook. But remember what covenant looks like. Remember the horrible things that the bride does to God. Yet God honors his covenant. Do we approach covenant like the rest of the world? To the world, covenant's like a piece of paper that just gets discarded in the face of inconvenience, hurt feelings, difficulty. If, if this describes you, then you haven't understood covenant the way that God intends it. There's only... There, there, there's one word that, I, that was kept being used in Ezekiel 16 that's used over and over again, and, it, and it's, it's used so often that I almost became numb to it. But it's, it's helpful um, with this description of covenant. The word um, is abomination. Um, in Hebrew, it's pronounced toeba. The, pre- the best translation is disgusting mixed with wickedness. It's the word that describes the wicked act that's so deeply unsettling that it makes someone physically ill. And I'm sure you've experienced it. Actually, I did just this week. I heard it on the news. Uh, brace you guys, brace yourselves. I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time. It's difficult to read, and um, I'm sure it's going to be just as difficult to hear. According to the Associated Press on March 9th, Russians bombed a Ukrainian maternity ward. A pregnant woman was found in the rubble of, bombed, of the bombed ward with a crushed pelvis and a detached hip. She was transported to another hospital where she begged the doctor to kill her, having realized that she was losing her baby. The baby was removed stillborn by cesarean and the woman died 30 minutes later. She was unable to be resuscitated. Toeba. Disgusting and wicked. And that's how God describes the sins of his church. Yet he still persists in covenant with her. He sent his son to die for her. Let me ask you something. Would you break your church covenant for less than that? Would you break your covenant because someone asked you to come early? Would you leave because someone challenges you? Would you leave because another member or leader frustrated you? Would you leave because someone angered you? Would you leave because you have a spouse, a house, or something better to do? No. None of us would do that. I pray not. Or maybe you don't want to make a covenant in the first place because all of this sounds really hard. Yet Christ overcame his lesser desire not to suffer. How did he do that? 
The answer is that his covenant led to a greater desire. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 2. So if you're avoiding covenant, look at Christ. He overcame his lesser desire for a greater joy. Does sepsis sound fun to anyone? Make a covenant with your church, with your brother, your sister, with God. If you don't feel like it, my encouragement is for each of you is to act in faith when those desires for the church and for Christ aren't there. And they will return. There's a joy that's set before you. Covenant doesn't just overcome lesser desires. It leads to greater desires. As John Piper puts it, the great problem of human beings is that they are far too easily pleased. And in Psalm 1611, in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. At God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Does this seem like the the freedom robbing, the oppressive, the joy stealing, the stingy God that our culture perpetuates? It's absolutely not. So why make a covenant? It frees you to be sanctified. It leads us to a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And it doesn't cost us a thing. You guys find yourselves at work hearing somebody talk to you about some great deal they just got on their outfit or on some gizmo they just bought. How about eternal joy for free? We were naked and despised when God covered us up. He washed us. He anointed us in oil. He dressed us in fine linen. He put jewelry around our necks and our fingers and our wrists. He loved us enough to give us all these things at the cost of his son. Despite our many wanderings and our backslidings from the path that he put forward for us. And he did it all because he earnestly desires us sinners. So what's left to do? We show up dirty, we show up sinful to an invitation into a covenant. And what do we bring to the party? What do you bring to a party that has everything that it needs? Nothing. You just sit around. You tell everyone how wonderful it is. You tell the host what a great job he's done. You tell him how much you're enjoying his company. You praise him with all of your heart and all of your sincerity. And so we praise God in this way. So let's reread Mark 14. We'll read, read verses uh, just 24 through 26. And we're going to also reread um, 1 Corinthians 5. So we can discuss further how we can praise God in this way. First in Mark 14. And he, Jesus, said to them, This is my blood of the covenant. And then later on, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate. So how do we praise God? We celebrate. What else is there to do? We have the reason and the response. Because of the sacrifice for us, let us celebrate. It's logical that if you just got this huge gift of eternal life and it didn't cost us a thing, it's time to celebrate. And, and removing the leaven or being sanctified is a celebration of the Passover lamb. That's what the apostles did. And that's what we do. We celebrate the bread, the sinless, unleavened body of Christ, which was given for us. So let's take a minute to look at how we celebrate. Uh, On top of the one I just mentioned, there there are three ways that I see mentioned in this text that we can celebrate. The first way is like it, um, is to celebrate uh, by being sanctified. 
And we do this by entering into a covenant. Remember what covenant is. I'm talking about a covenant that frees us from sin and promises future love. So what are some ways that we can make that kind of covenant? Well, we can go and get married. That's an example of covenant. The mission of marriage being iron sharpening iron or sanctification. We could join a church. That's another example of covenant. These are both examples of what we call horizontal covenants. And Ezekiel 16 being an example of vertical covenant with God. Um, but I think most of you at this point in your life have decided whether you're married or whether you're going to join a church or not. So um, let's take a little step back and get a little bit more creative here. So we can and should be acting out of the love that Christ has given to us when we make a covenant. So we can commit to a brother or sister for a Bible study. Or we can commit to doing verse memorization with them. Or we can commit to a phone call once a week for some encouragement. The ideas here are endless, guys. Just pick one. Follow through with it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second way that I see in this text uh, that we can celebrate is to sing. We encourage everyone to sing here. We don't care if you couldn't carry a tune if it, doesn't, if it uh, had handles. <laughs> We're exploding at the seams uh, for praise for God. He took all of our sins and we ought to be overflowing into song. Jesus and the apostles broke into song after having made a covenant and before uh, going to the Mount of Olives. We just want you all to be like them and make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And the third way uh, to celebrate that's mentioned in the section is to take communion. We're going to have the opportunity to do that shortly. But communion is a time of celebration of the covenant that God gave to us. Communion is a celebration of our vertical covenant uh, that God entered into us uh, with us. And he paid the greatest cost of his son for. We remember Christ's sacrifice. We celebrate it for the joy that it brings us. And we thank God for the horizontal covenants he gave us in church and in marriage and in friendship. And we thank God that he's given each of you one another for the purpose of joy. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, Isaiah 25, 6. And so we celebrate also that one day our sanctification and our covenant will be brought to completion. And we'll once again drink of the fruit of the vine in the presence of Christ, new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you sinful today. We ask that you cleanse us of our sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. Make us less like Christ in his unleavened, sinless body. Move our stubborn hearts into covenant that we might glorify you on earth as you've washed us and covered our nakedness and sin while we were yet despised. We seek only to present our members to you as bondservants to Christ. Father, empower us by the Holy Spirit to glorify you in this way until the day that we drink again of the fruit of the vine in the presence of Christ, new in your kingdom. Amen.